0: If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. We continue in our study of the Gospel of Mark. I was asked by somebody this week, why didn't the disciples get it? They were with Jesus, and yet they got things so wrong. It's a recurring theme we've seen thus far in the Gospel of Mark. The disciples' reactions are marked by really an, a lack of understanding, a non-understanding. And in many ways, they are not that different than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They get it wrong. They failed to recognize the unique character of Jesus. They failed to recognize the nature of the kingdom of God. And they failed to see that Jesus and his work should be seen in the context of the Old Testament scripture. Their conclusion very much like our own I don't think we're that radically different sometimes from the disciples their view was yeah I wouldn't do it that way so when Jesus first announces to the disciples that he is going to be put to death he's going to go to Jerusalem and suffer and then be put to death uh, Peter takes him aside and rebukes him he's like no, no no that's not the way it works that's not how the story goes Like the disciples, we oftentimes think we have a better vision of what the kingdom of God looks like or how it should look in our lives, how it should look in the world. And like the disciples, we would be wrong. Like the disciples, far too often we have hardened hearts. We've been contaminated by the yeast of false views of the kingdom. Like the disciples, we may be guilty of thinking or trying to shape God's work in the world to fit our own expectations that this is the way God should work he must work you see we might say well the disciples were with Jesus but we have had the work of God in our lives and we have seen it in the lives of others we have the record of scripture so it's not as though we can say well if we were with Jesus we wouldn't have this problem and I I beg to disagree we tend to follow our own expectations of what he should do. I think Hebrews 11 is a good remedy for this. It's the chapter on faith and on belief. And toward the end of the chapter, the writer puts, "What And what more shall I say? We do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, to shut, who shut the mouths of lions. So the victorious life, yes, that's what God will do. He goes on, quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in bow- battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. So deliverance, so victory, deliver. Yeah, this, this is what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like. But then he goes on to say, others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. And I love the next line. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. So we have victory, we have deliverance, we have suffering. That We didn't think that was part of the program. And like the disciples, we may want the kingdom of God to be the way we imagine it to be. It's not all victory and deliverance. Sometimes there is great suffering. But in all situations, in victory, in deliverance, and in suffering, we are to have faith. Today I want to look at one specific incident. We've been, in the past weeks, looking at several each Sunday. But today I want to look at one and to appreciate the impact of this, we need to remember what comes before. And that is when Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on the mount, and then there he was transfigured. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then a cloud appeared and en- enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud voice came from the cloud this is my son whom I love listen to him it's an amazing event and then they come down from the mountain and as one commentator put it it's like if you go on a hike and everything's fine and then suddenly before you know it there's a complete drop off there's a cliff there's an abyss and they go from the heights of the mountain to this this mess that they find with the other disciples look if you would at verse number 14 Mark 9 14 when they came to the other disciples they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them as soon as all the people saw Jesus they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him what are you arguing with them about he asked it's interesting this question is not answered directly okay But I think what happens next sort of gives us a hint at what was going on. Verse 17, a man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked his disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. And here, I think, is the question. Here is the argument. Why couldn't they do this? Why couldn't they do this? And so the crowd is happy when Jesus is coming, that they can't do it, but maybe Jesus can. Verse 19. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. The four things I want us to consider about this incident, two are rather brief, the other two more extensive. The first is the issue of privacy, and we've seen this before. Um, When Jesus gets all the information, like how long has he been like this, um, there's the initial contact, the spirit sees him and shrieks, and uh, the boy falls to the ground in convulsion. Um, But when does Jesus do all this? When, When does he actually cast out the spirit? You'll notice it's when Jesus saw a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. This is not this is not going to be a public spectacle. Jesus isn't going to put on a show for the crowd. Jesus isn't going to do an exorcism that everyone can see. This is not going to be a sign for those who do not believe, those who ask for a sign. Here's a wonderful opportunity to give them a sign. He's not going to do that. This is something between Jesus and this boy and his father. We've seen this before. This personal connection and intimacy between Jesus and those that he heals. Like the blind man at Bethsaida. Jesus took him by the hand. The crowd brought the man to Jesus and begged Jesus to heal him of his blindness. Jesus takes him by the hand. He leads him outside the village. That is away from the crowd. And that is where he heals him. It's not a public spectacle. And it isn't this sort of this general here, let me heal you. It's a very close intimacy, a very personal relationship between Jesus and the one that he heals. That's one of the short ones. The second thing for us to consider is the issue of demon possession. This is the fourth and last time in the Gospel of Mark in which Jesus deals with and casts out an evil spirit. Just a side note, the word demon is used 13 times in Mark, and unclean or evil spirit is used 11 times. It is worth noting, and I guess I should have known this, but didn't, that in most English translations, the word demon does not appear at all in the Old Testament. It first shows up in the Gospels. It's in the Gospels that we first learn or hear of demon possession, By the way, we are told about Saul that he, in fact, was tormented by an evil spirit sent by the Lord. That raises a whole host of questions. The ESV has harmful spirit, that Saul, who had turned against God, God now turns against him and sort of afflicts him by the spirit. We read about demons, unclean spirits in the New Testament, but we are told nothing about their origin. Their nature, their characteristics, their habits. We are told about their final destination, which they are trying to avoid. In Luke chapter 8, in the account of the man uh, who lived among the tombs, who had a demon named Legion, um, they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. That was the thing that they feared, their final destination. One thing that does come out the word demon is not created by the Gospel writers. It was a common word. But among pagans, a demon was seen as a, a spirit, a force, but there was really no morality in, connected. That a demon was morally indifferent. Um, evil was not a consideration. However, the New Testament writers use demon and unclean or evil spirit interchangeably. I think they want us to know that there is, in fact, a very strong moral component. These are agents of evil. They are, in fact, evil. Um, it, we were talking several Sundays ago when we were dealing with the issue of uh, demons, that how that we have domesticated them. And so, you know, you, you see a cartoon or see someone who has an angel on one shoulder and a demon on the other, you know, trying to get this person to go one way or the other. In many ways we've sort of sanitized and domesticated demons and we forget that there is, in fact, this issue of evil. Satan has failed to get Jesus to give in to temptation in the wilderness. Now he continues the fight through his minions as they possess people and they confront Jesus in his public ministry. Side note again, just as one cannot kill God, one can do, I guess, the next best thing, and that is to kill someone who bears God's image. That's why murder is so wrong, because it is, in fact, an indirect attack against God. Noah was told, and from each man too, I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God has God made man. So the direct attack against Jesus failed in the wilderness, and now it's an indirect attack by possessing these people who then Jesus confronts as he does his public ministry. Satan and demons hate human beings. They hate humanity. They do all they can to harm and destroy the human race. In his book, Evil and the Justice of God, N.T. Wright defines evil this way. It is the force of anti-creation, anti-life, the force which opposes and seeks to deface and destroy God's good work of space, time, and matter, and above all, God's image-bearing human creatures. So we should take note that as Mark writes his gospel, the first miracle that Mark records is in a synagogue a man who is possessed by an unclean spirit. There's something else, and that is, if you think about it, the Jews should have been the last people who would have had a problem with demon possession. We would expect those who worship false gods, those who worship demons, prayed to unclean spirits, that they've, in a sense, they've opened themselves up to these spirits coming in and possessing them. But not those who are The children of Abraham, those who worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The one exception to all of this, by the way, is the Syrophoenician woman's daughter. The Syrophoenician woman is Greek and is from the area around Sidon. Um, She is the exception. Otherwise, these are Jewish people who worship the true God and yet somehow have been afflicted by this thing of demon possession. So how do you know if someone is possessed? With the exception of the man who lived among the tombs, um, everybody else seemed to live at home. The guy who was in the synagogue, um, this boy is living at home, his dad's taking care of him. Uh, even the woman, the Syrophoenician woman, her daughter is at home. So there is a certain normalcy to their lives, and then they, there would be these incidents, these events of... Uh, convulsion or shrieking or somehow trying to hurt the person that is possessed here we go up I think against some misunderstandings some today would say that what is called demon possession in the gospels was in fact merely a physical affliction for which they had no cure and so they attributed it to some type of spiritual force On the other hand, you have the opposite school who would say that every type of physical ailment is a result of evil spirits. As to the first, um, one of the problems I've had with some of the newer translations, particularly when we come to Leviticus chapter 14, that deals with leprosy, they instead put infectious skin diseases. And no doubt, if you look at Leviticus 14, it is possible that some people have eczema or psoriasis, some type of rash. Um, But leprosy was a terminal condition. It's a terminal condition. And when Jesus heals lepers, it isn't like, well, I need my skin to clear up a bit. You know, I've been having this problem with scales and stuff. Uh, This is something that is going to kill them. And he heals them. And so it is, I think, with demon possession. Some would simply play it down as, well, that's, that's the way the ancients saw physical uh, problems, maladies. It's like, yeah, they attribute it to something else. Um, as is the case with leprosy, which we now call Hansen's disease and is, uh, for the most part, now curable. But what people fail to take into account is the moral component of demon possession. It isn't simply, oh, this person has a physical malady. In the case of this boy, mute and deaf. It's like, oh, you know, you need to clear up his ears, um, perhaps give him the ability to speak, but the idea that there's some moral component to this, I think is something that we miss. But in fact, an evil, an unclean spirit, a demon had taken possession of this boy. And it didn't simply make him deaf and mute it tried to kill him would throw him into the fire it hated him even though the boy was if you wish the physical host on the other hand in today's world particularly among the church there are some who would say that every physical ailment we have is a result of a demon or an unclean spirit and they would point to this particular case a spirit who had robbed this boy of speech but Think of what we've studied thus far in the Gospel of Mark. Simon's mother-in-law who had a fever. And Jesus heals her. The leper who says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus heals him. He heals the paralytic. The man with a withered hand. The woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. A man who was deaf and who could hardly speak. And then the blind man at Bethsaida. In none of these cases... And there are other cases, by the way, that the specifics were not given of that Jesus was healing all day, for example. In none of these cases are we told that their condition was a result of demonic forces or possession. The reality is we are frail children of dust and feeble as frail. Our bodies break down in different ways. And when Jesus comes into the world, he brings healing to bodies. And in some cases... Cast out demons. But they are not the same thing. And we need to understand that. The third thing I'd have you consider is the matter of faith, belief, and unbelief. If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. There are two groups in the matter here of faith. In the first group, uh, in verse number 19, Jesus says, "O unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. In the first, you have the crowd and the disciples in an argument. And both sides of this argument are faithless. That's why they are a faithless generation. The crowd wants to see an exorcism not a question of believing there's no issue of faith that God can can in fact rescue this boy they just want to see it it's a show they want to see an exorcism and so in that sense they are faithless on the other hand we find that the disciples in fact are unable to cast out this demon and I would say it is in fact because of their lack of faith what we find and what Jesus tells us Whatever is going on, it isn't faith. On both sides of the argument, they are a faithless generation. But then let's look at the faith of the Father. The interaction reminds me of the passage in James chapter 1. James says, But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. What's being asked for here is wisdom. In the previous verse, if any any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. In verse number five, we are told about the generosity and the sincerity of God. He will not withhold wisdom from us if we ask for it. In verses six through eight of James one, the question is, are we sincere? When we ask, do we really believe, or is, are we like the crowd? We, we want to see a show. Show us something special. Do we want to go forward with God? Are we wholeheartedly committed to his way of seeing things? Or are we keeping the door open and sort of a foot outside the door uh, to keep us sane, if you wish, to be like the world? So we're sort of believing and not believing at the same time. God is single-minded. He's generous. We, on the other hand, may be double-minded. Faith is our confidence that he will give us what we ask for. Unbelief is a failure to believe that he will do, as is his nature, to be single-minded and to be generous. Doubt is the result of being in two minds. Believing and not believing at the same time. The title of an outstanding book on doubt that I would recommend to you by Oz Guinness is called In Two Minds. There are two words that come up in James' account. The first is doubt. And the word doubt is found elsewhere in the New Testament, uh, but it's not translated as doubt, so it sort of throws us. um, In Matthew 16. Jesus replied, When evening comes, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. You might say, I I didn't hear the word doubt there. It is translated as the word to interpret. That is to decide between two alternative interpretations. In Acts chapter 11, so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him. Where is doubt there? It's to criticize. It's to take one position and to criticize someone who takes another view. In Romans 14, the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith and everything that does not come from faith is sin. The King James has in the center reference an alternative translation for doubt. Discern and put a difference between meats, that is to be hesitant to make a decision between the two positions, to eat meat or to not eat meat. So the first word is doubt. The second is double-minded. People have suggested that James sort of made up this word, Um, perhaps in Greek he did, but I I would recommend that you read the book of Psalms. It does, in fact, speak from time to time of us being double-minded, of having two hearts. It's not the same as, in English, being two-faced. You know, it speaks of being hypocritical or trying to deceive. For James, it is looking both ways. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, no one can serve two masters. Okay, you have to make a choice. Well, James brings up doubt and being double-minded. And the question is, are they the same thing? Well, doubt is not the same thing as unbelief. Doubt is, in fact, believing and not believing at the same time. To answer the question, are doubt and being double-minded the same thing, we have to ask what belief and unbelief are. Do they simply refer to mental activities? Are we talking about actions? How we act based on what we believe to be true. Belief is tied to actions. and you know, James will say, don't be hearers only, but doers of the word. Um, for James, faith is not simply believing. You know, the, de- the demons believe and tremble. They know that there is a God. Okay? What James is talking about is serving two masters as Jesus put it in the Sermon on the Mount you either will love the one and hate the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other it's not a question of intellectual doubt belief means living as though God exists and unbelief is living as though he does not exist it's practical atheism which is present in our lives more than we would care to admit so the question comes up Is it possible to not doubt? I think perhaps a better way to put this question, because of when and where we live, is it possible to have perfect faith? That is, faith without unbelief. And I would say no. As a fallen human being living in a fallen world, I'm not capable of doing anything perfectly. And so to have faith perfectly, to believe completely and perfectly, no. Emily Dickinson, uh, toward the end of her life, wrote in a letter to a friend, we both believe and disbelieve a hundred times an hour, which keeps believing nimble. We, somehow we think I've got to have enough faith, I've got to have perfect faith. And the reality is, fallen human beings, we find ourselves going back and forth, going back and forth. And like the, the boy's father, crying out to God, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Some have pushed the idea that if you have enough faith, or if you believe God enough, he will answer your prayer or your prayers. And Jesus said, if you had the, the faith the size of a mustard seed, you could move mountains. The amount of faith is not the issue. And I want to be very careful there. The quality of our faith is not the issue. I have to be even more careful there. We are to believe and act on our belief. But know in the same instant that we can't do this perfectly. That there are times, well I, th- I would say all the time, in which we believe and don't believe. We act on faith and act as though God doesn't exist from moment to moment in Matthew 28 before the great commission we read then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go when they saw him they worshipped him but some doubted this is the human condition this boy's father puts it so well we do believe help us overcome our unbelief and then quickly, the fourth thing that I would have you consider is the failure of the disciples. In verse number 28, if you look at it, after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? This is a reasonable question. You may remember in chapter 6, Jesus sent them out on mission. They were to preach, they were to heal, and they were to cast out demons And in chapter 6, verse 13, they drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So why couldn't they do it this time? Why couldn't they drive out this particular unclean and evil spirit? And in verse number 29, Jesus answers them. He replied, this kind can come only by prayer and fasting you have the NIV it has the footnote it puts fasting there at at the bottom which I think is incorrect because fasting in the New Testament isn't oh I'm going to deprive myself I'm going to suffer I'm going to make myself suffer not at all fasting is the time I would have spent maybe preparing the meal certainly eating the meal instead of doing that I'm going to pray Uh, first Corinthians 7 there Paul talks about sexual fasting that the husband and wife will stay away from each other so that they might spend time in prayer. So, in fact, what's being said here is this kind comes only by prayer and praying. In a sense, Jesus repeats himself. It may have been, and this is speculation on my part, I think I'm on safe ground here, that the disciples thought they had things covered. We've done this before. We cast out many demons. Another demon, bring it on. We can deal with this. They forgot that it is the Lord God Almighty who accomplishes his purposes through his people. It isn't that they have the power themselves. It is God working through them. And prayer is, in fact, that conduit. You may remember when we looked at the matter of prayer that prayer is answering speech. And in the quote that we looked at today before communion, God has the first word. He has the last word. And all the words in between are spoken in a vocabulary and by means of a grammar that are his gifts to us. The disciples failed to remember or to recognize, that's very possible but they didn't recognize, that they were completely dependent upon God. That somehow they must have thought, we got this covered we can take care of this we can do this and that we are dependent upon God is best illustrated it is the ultimate illustration of this dependence is prayer may God forgive us when we don't pray as we should because somehow somehow like the disciples we think we've got it covered we've got it all figured out This incident starts out with an argument between the crowd and the disciples who are left behind over the inability of the disciples to cast out the demon. And one writer uh, puts, in this regard writes this, the disciples have turned a corner in their pilgrimage. Now it's getting harder. People today often suppose that the early years of a person's Christian pilgrimage are the difficult ones, and that as you go on in the Christian life, it gets more straightforward. The opposite is frequently the case. Precisely when you learn to walk beside Jesus, you are given harder tasks which demand more courage, more spiritual energy. And then the writer asks, did we suppose that following Jesus was like a summer holiday? I think, oh when you first become a Christian it's really hard but then as, as you sort of get in the groove and you've got this going and you've got it figured out then you just sort of crew, put it in cruise and you're going no and the disciples learned that as well after studying a passage like this we might think um, yeah this doesn't really apply to us this is you know back when Jesus was here and demon possession was rife among the Jewish people as Satan is fighting against him in his earthly ministry. We're not in a similar situation. Uh, We don't, for the most part, I think, don't face cases of demon possession. And if we think that, then we have failed to recognize that the world is in rebellion against God. In closing here, let me read to you from Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Lord which is the word of God. Before I read the next verse, I'm just reminded... I've had two different people over the years tell me, Damon, you know, I'm not, I'm not worried about, you know, the principalities, the powers, those things. I'm worried about the person in the armor. <laughs> we put on the armor, but what about me? What about my own brokenness? Well, Paul then writes, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. It is the ultimate demonstration and expression of dependence upon God that we pray. So you might think, well, I've got all these things. I've got the breastplate, I've got the shield, I've got the sword, and I'm ready to go. And Paul's like, no, you need to pray. And pray not only for yourselves, but for all the saints the disciples had failed to recognize that what they were able to do was a gift from God they were dependent upon God they just didn't get it and so they came up against a wall a case they couldn't heal they couldn't cast out the demon are you not surprised when we read time after time that Jesus would go away and pray if anyone didn't need to charge his batteries if you wish it's Jesus, he's God but he was dependent upon the Father And we are as well And if we don't see that Then we're in serious trouble Let's pray together Our Father we are so like the disciples We have our own versions Of what your kingdom should look like We have our own expectations Of what you should do And not do in our lives and the lives of others. The reality is you are so gracious and so loving and you care for us. Forgive us for thinking that we know better than you. And forgive us when we think that we've We've arrived, we've got it covered We can be independent and self-sufficient When the reality is that we are always dependent upon you, our Father We could not take a single breath without you We could not have any understanding of the gospel without you I thank you for your patience with us we who believe and disbelieve in the same moment who act in faith and then act as though you're not there Lord we believe help us to overcome our unbelief we thank you for the Lord Jesus not only for his death and resurrection but for his life for his teaching, his example and as James says may we not be hearers of the word only but doers as well may we not simply say I believe but in fact act on that belief I thank you for bringing us together today beginning of a new week Help us to remember that you're not only here with us today This place But you will be with us every step of the way Through this week May we in prayer reach out to you You who have spoken first We now respond And say Abba Father Guide us Be with us We are dependent upon you Thank you for bringing us together today May your spirit and your grace go with us As we leave this place I pray in Jesus name Amen